Hey, this is Randy. And I'm Jim. And I'm Emil. And I am Francois. Welcome, everybody, to Leave the Bottle. You can find us on the web at leavethebottlepodcast.com or on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud. Francois, you're located in Kiev. How long have you been in Kiev? Uh, it's going to be 14 years now. 14 years. Whoa. Yes. Recently, you, I believe um, you're kind of in the middle of things in Kiev. Um, tell us a little bit about what's been happening right in your neighborhood. Well, I live about 800 meters from uh, what has been known now worldwide as Euromaidan or Maidan, which is uh, Independence Square in the center of Kiev. So it's 10 minutes walk. Um, and I just came back from there actually to meet my, uh, my wife and daughter. What exactly? How are things right at the moment in the last day or two? Calm or not? It's very calm. The tents are still there. The, uh, the, the new, uh, Let's say, call them uh, volunteers who are maintaining order or are just, in fact, being there until the presidential elections uh, are there. They have their tents. It looks a lot like a military camp. Uh, however, there are civilians, there are kids, there are people disguised as uh, pandas having their photos taken. So it's kind of half uh, military camp, half Woodstock. <laughs> you think it? W- w- it's, it sounds a little like Occupy Wall Street, actually, except that there was some violence a couple of weeks ago, or maybe January, February. What, well, what was the start of all this? Could you, could you walk us through it? Because uh, let me explain something to you. Leave the bottle podcast. We don't talk about news unless we have someone who's been there, and you have been there. So that's why I'm asking yeah. you to walk us through a little bit. What okay, happened? Well, I, I think the media have covered all over the world, but basically what happened is at the end of November 2013, the uh, government of Ukraine walked away from an association treaty with the European Union, uh, which they had been promising the people of Ukraine for about two years, uh, without any kind of consultation. And that triggered what was basically a student's protest at Maidan in the center. It was mostly students uh, and mostly about uh, Ukraine wants to join Europe. Then end of November, the riot police attacked the students at night. There were beatings, fairly brutal ones. I think you can see the videos. They're all over the web. Mm -hmm. And from there, it escalated with uh, no longer with students, but a lot of people came. There was at some point one up to one million protesters. And on the other side, there was the riot police plus some, well, if you followed the news, uh, what you know is that then mid-February, snipers started shooting, sorry, uh, protesters in the crowd. There's more than 100 dead. Uh, downtown. This is quite a shock, uh, let me tell you, to walk to places where you've been almost daily for uh, more than a decade and see tombs there. It's not a shot. Uh, it's, 
feels very different. Then President Mr. Viktor Yanukovych fled the country. Uh, the parliament, so really the in Ukrainian the Verkhovna Rada, voted uh, a new uh, interim president and prime minister. And uh, as of two days ago, the this interim government has signed a political association with the European Union. Now, in between, there was a referendum for uh, independence of Crimea, uh, which is the southernmost part of Ukraine, but has about two-thirds of uh, Ukraine's uh, seacoast in the Black Sea and the Azov Sea and is home to the, the Russian naval base, of the uh, Black Sea Fleet. So that was a second very big event in the, in the recent history of the country. This referendum was turned out to, uh, I was not there, but you know, close and following, uh, Crimea uh, technically voted for independence and joined the uh, Russian Federation, which is, uh, it's for every Ukrainian I know, it's a very sad uh, thing that happens. At the same time, it, uh, it was not done gently, peacefully, or uh, according to what you would call standards of a referendum. You may remember, Randy, that I'm from Quebec in Canada, mm -hmm. a place that has had several referendums over independence. One of them came uh, to a few decimal points. Uh, the, the question always was, do you want Quebec to be independent? Yes, no. Uh, I'm oversimplifying, but the question in Crimea was different. It was, do you want Crimea to be independent? And then the other option was, do you want Crimea to be independent and join the Russian Federation? There was no option of status quo or stay in Ukraine. Uh, so it's kind of tricky. Uh, what is the feeling, uh, presumably, if nothing else, you have to go out shopping for groceries and you know participating in uh, in some way in the life around there uh, what are you getting from people i mean you guys are actually not you're quite a ways from crimea as far as i know uh, mm -hmm. up there but still um, there must be a reaction i was telling jim a few minutes ago before we started recording that uh, i was looking at some articles and because of the tourism tourism down there on on the black sea there are a lot of people who have businesses and they're just totally, you know, they have to follow whatever wave happens, right? Uh, but yes. what is the feeling where you are? Because you're, you're way north of there, as far as I know. Yeah. Um, what are you getting from people as far as uh, how they're looking at this? I mean, is it panic? Is it, well, you know, another thing? No, it's, it's not panic and it's not indifference. The, uh, the sentiment everywhere else in Ukraine is Crimea is Ukrainian. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. I don't, I haven't been in Crimea in several years, and when I was there, 
it was as a tourist and it was only in Yalta. I cannot claim to know each and every, as three million people in Crimea and I don't know them by name. However, the two things I know for sure about Crimea is in 1991, when there was a, referum, a referendum for independence of Ukraine from Russia or from the Soviet Union, the, the vote was well above 90%. Yes, we want to be an independent country. The only region of Ukraine where it was a little bit contentious was Crimea, where the yes vote got about 54%, and the no vote got the rest, which this is the only place where it was tight, really. It was above 80 everywhere else. Because there are many, so, many... There's something like over 50% Russians... In Crimea, right? I'd say even more than that. Probably, what there's roughly three million people in Crimea. Okay. I would say about two million of them are ethnic Russian. Okay. Uh, does that mean that they want to be Russian, as in citizens of Russia? That's a different question. That question is different everywhere in Ukraine. Now, back to what I actually know and uh, observe with my own eyes. Eastern Ukraine has very often been described as pro-Russian uh, in Western media. It's not. Mm. It speaks Russian. It doesn't mean they want to be part of the Russian Federation. Uh, there were as many people on Maidan from Eastern uh, Ukraine as from Western and Central Ukraine. Okay, you, you've lived in, you've lived in, uh, in Kiev for, for 14 years. What do you think, this is opinion, I realize, but we're not going to get this in the news. What do you think are the advantages for the average guy or, or, or woman, the average man or woman on the street to be Russian, Ukrainian, or what else? That's it. That's the choice. Are there advantages to being a Russian as opposed to being a Ukrainian? Um, how, how do you see that? If you... Are you talking about having a Russian or Ukrainian passport, or are you? No, well, actually, about I, I, I poorly more of an identity. No, of, I, I, I poorly asked. I poorly posed the question. What I meant was because because you're not a citizen. I don't think anyway. Um, what I meant was, what do you think for the average person who lives there? Is it better to be Ukraine? Is it better to be under the auspices, under the power of Ukraine as an independent thing? Or is it better to be, is there some advantage to being Russian other than the fact that, you know, you feel that you're Russian? Um, there would be for some people in the industrial east where a lot of the uh, economy is based on exports to Russia. I guess it might be uh, advantages to be a Russian citizen. Uh, and I'm talking about perhaps, the, you know, the middle class, certainly mm -hmm. not for the oligarchs, because then Russian oligarchs would eat uh, Ukrainian oligarchs in about two weeks, because uh, they're much richer and powerful. And as for the blue collar worker who's mining coal in Donetsk, I don't see a difference. I can tell you that he's there in Kiev now, uh, wearing his army camo, and uh, is, it's really about uh, what's the identity of Ukraine? Is it Slavic? Is it purely Ukrainian? Is it 
a vassal state of Russia or is it a European country? Well, the people have answered uh, twice now. In 1991, they answered, we're Ukrainian. And then again, in the recent months, and so we're Ukrainian, but we feel closer to Europe. I think but, Jim had uh, a question or comment. Well, yeah, because I mean, uh, the 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 Crimean uh, citizens, by and large, well, it's the Russian majority there now. But that was because that's not historically how it was, though. No, I mean uh, Stalin brought in the Russians displacing virtually almost everybody was there. The reason now that there is such a Russian majority in Crimea is not because of an ancestral reason. It's because of a forced reason. In my opinion, such uh, kind of like what China has done with Tibet, where they've, you know, they've gone in, they've displaced a lot of the Tibetans moving in, a lot of ethnic Chinese now claiming, well, it's a, you know, it's a Chinese territory. Well, it's a Chinese territory artificially. And it, it's, if you look back at what Stalin did in Crimea, you know, he in effect, essentially stacked the deck with Russians. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And so, and and so now when the, yeah, and now when the media is, you know, the Western media, all the media is saying, well, you know, there's 75 or 80 percent, you know, ethnic Russians well, yes, because the historical inhabitants of the area were displaced, sent away, killed off. I think it was something like 46% of uh, the population uh, when they were moved out of there died. Uh, so that's leaving the Russians. Um, so knowing all of that, I, I guess I'm still trying to understand why Ukrainians consider Crimea Crimea, the uh, part of Ukraine, when historically they weren't. Well, the, the I think a large part of it is well. Firstly, when Khrushchev gave Crimea to the Ukrainian Socialist uh, Soviet Republic, then Ukraine started thinking, "Well, Crimea is ours." But right. Also, if you look at the, the geography, where else does it belong? It's it's uh, it's the southern tip of Ukraine. It has nothing to do with the uh, with Russia. the The original population of Crimea was, was mostly Tatars uh, and other tribes of the Scythian Empire dating back two thousand years. What Stalin did is he took the entire Soviet Union and sliced it vertically. And in the case of Crimea, horizontally, and put, he created these oblasti or regions which were ethnically aligned. At the easternmost tip of Russia, there is still today a Jewish oblast. Uh, less than 1% of the population is Jewish there nowadays. But it was where the Jews were to live in Stalin's Soviet Union. It's like that throughout the Russian Federation. Well, Khrushchev, though, he had a vested interest in doing what he did because he was also half Ukrainian. Yes. So I think so. I, I you know, there's there's many reasons. So it's not just that. It's never as simple as that. But that does come into play. 
I think it does. Uh, I think it does. Yes, uh, Khrushchev was a remarkable man, and uh, very different from uh, the the leaders of the Soviet Union that preceded or followed him. Um, he, he did. He was on the road to very interesting reforms in uh, the Soviet Union, even though he was quite a character. People who are old enough to remember his speeches at the United Nations and the shoe, the, shoe, yeah, on the shoe, shoe on the table, yeah. Or the, you know, atomic warheads like sausages, and he was doing chopping motion. Tuk, 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 tuk. Didn't uh, he also say, "We will bury you"? That was him, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, him. he did. It was also uh, the one with the sausages and the uh, uh, atomic bombs, right? That was him. Yeah. He was in, he was too far ahead of his time uh, in certain ways. He was. I mean, he was. I'm not going to say he was Gorbachev because I don't know that he was ever going to be that much of a reformist. But he, he was essentially a two or three decades earlier quasi version of. And obviously, you know, the Politburo did not care for that. Did not want that. And he was. You know, I don't know if he was seen as a threat to them, but. Uh, his newfangled ideas weren't that well. I agree. Uh, now, also, I think they never forgave him for uh, turning back the boats in Cuba. I agree. I agree. Now, no, we're talking about now for Ukraine, but it's not just Ukraine at this point. I mean, there's other former republics who are getting more than a little bit nervous right now. The first one I keep reading about is Moldova, but I also read about Estonia because uh, Putin is making it very clear that he wants to protect Russian interests in the region. What's going to happen next? Anybody? Well, uh, I guess here, everybody is asking that question uh, on a daily basis. As you know, at Russia, the UK, the US had committed to defend the territorial integrity of Ukraine and not to invade or annex in exchange for what was the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world. Um, and the, the quite a few political figures here during the annexation of Crimea said, he would never have dared do that if we had kept our arsenals. I think this has impact all over the world. How are we to prevent nuclear proliferation if we tell countries to disarm in exchange for protection that we don't give? Uh, the, you know, Ukrainians are... How decent is your show, Randy? You can say whatever you want. Say whatever you want. Ukraine, Ukrainians are pissed off that nobody came to the rescue with force. On the other hand, uh, honestly, I, you're from Canada, I think. Um, you're, I'm sure you're very familiar with the United States and probably pretty up on what's going on now. And uh, the question that Americans are asking is, uh, what are we supposed to do, really? Uh, what you just said is important, and that's I got that from from reading and looking at what's going on. That there was a treaty, and that you know promises were made 
But on the other hand, um, I can you know, tell you as an American, there's, there's, there's absolutely no desire from Americans other than maybe a few politicians for sound bites. There's, I can't think of one person I know here who is willing to put one troop and then into Europe. I am, I, I am absolutely maybe, you know what? This is going to sound awful, but I think it's the truth. I think if Ukraine was Germany, I think if Ukraine was France, hmm. certainly England, certainly England, it would be a far, far different story. But I think that a lot of Americans look at this. I feel it's in the incorrect way, but I think that a lot of Americans look at this as this is somebody else's fight. This is some. This is a historic region where they have been for you know two thousand years or longer, have been battling it out. That you know they have small periods of, if, uh, I don't know about a peace, but a, a truce at least. Mm-hmm. And that yeah, if you look at the maps and the landscapes over hundreds of years, you know Crimea Crimea was part of Russia in the seventeen hundreds, annexed two hundred and some odd years ago. Then you know it's it was independent or you know sovereign and Ukraine. I think that Americans, by and large, just they don't see what's in it for them. Well, there's two. I think there's two things to risk their lives of their sons and daughters. I think there's two things, Jim. First of all, uh, what you just said, which is 100 percent true, but also, uh, you know, they don't really have that much power to extend a military presence when you no. when you look at I don't even want to get into this this is a can of worms but you, you know yeah, we, you we were started geopolitical- three or four wars that we're still in so forget you know right. what are we going to do but 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 mainly um get, getting back to Francois because I'm very interested in, what do you think the expectation is are people going are people outraged saying well wait a minute we there's an agreement here why isn't anybody you know coming into this thing or is it uh, you know, Kesara Sara, or is it what? What exactly is the feeling that you're getting there? Well, I, I'd like to comment on what Jim just said. Sure, I, I, I also agree that it would be completely inappropriate for the United States to intervene with uh, troops, uh, and I'm even though it might be on Ukrainians' behalf or for them, I don't think Ukrainians want that. I think, however what everybody was expecting was a stronger reaction than expressing deep outrage and other diplomatic technical language that people on the street do not understand. And to to actually intervene somehow. Uh, But what's emerging is that this is not the United States fight, for sure. It is, however, a problem for Europe, yes, the European Union and NATO, uh, because the, now, now we're in the strange situation in Ukraine where we have two very powerful military blocs, Russia on one side and NATO on the other. Uh, we have seven borders. And where, I mean, strictly from a strategic point of view, where should we stand? Uh, as are we the next proxy war? I, nobody uh, here wants that. 
no, but it's it's it certainly seems to be heading in that direction. Whether it's a full blown war or whether it's uh, us just basically accepting that the us meaning the West accepting that Russia is going to have Russia's way. I think Europe is going to have to stop relying on the U.S. for absolutely everything in the region uh, and start uh, playing its own role in terms of security and defense. And uh, I guess a lot of Ukrainians were counting on Europe, the European Union, to be a lot firmer and... uh, what else could nobody they, was they expecting though it's i mean other than shy of sending armies in there i mean as you said it yourself crimea was um uh, considered mostly russian anyway and i actually had a um i had a question on that one what is exactly ukraine losing with crimea because you said ukrainians are pissed off but um how much of of, of their uh gdp depends on crimea how how much of resources are less than three percent it's less than three percent the gdp of right. the country actually you know my wife would kill me for this but when putin started wanting crimea i said okay let's sell it to him for 200 billion dollars <laughs> and, and let him have it they, they actually lost dollars. pretty much almost that much with with their with them maintaining the ruble right after the uh, yeah after well, the it cost uh, it cost them so far about uh, I think it's fifty billion dollars. Last figure I saw yeah, that uh, you know back to back Sochi fifty billion, and then annexing Crimea fifty billion is about twenty five percent of their foreign reserves. Went into two events over the space of six months. That's a pretty large uh, chunk of money. But the, the, back to what I was saying. You know, Randy was mentioning tourism in Crimea. Two-thirds of tourists in Crimea are Ukrainians because we do not have a visa-free regime in Ukraine so we can travel to Europe, Spain, Tenerife, whatever. Okay, a lot of Ukrainians go summering in Crimea. That's two-thirds of the tourism. Now it's over. I guess we will be forbidden to go. Uh, so that's going to hurt the industry there and a lot. Uh, do, do Ukrainians need visas in order to go to Russia? Uh, no. Well, now I don't know, honestly. But used to be a Ukrainian passport could take you anywhere into uh, Eastern Europe. So maybe they would still have the right to go to, to Crimea? I don't know. I think Crimea is going to be to become a special little space uh, in the Russian Federation where uh, at least this summer it will be very difficult for a Ukrainian tourist to enter. Hmm. Uh, what I expect will be done there is building of lots and lots of defense installations. In possibly the, a new naval port. Uh, in, the, in the article I was just reading, I think it was on the BBC maybe, um, was taken from the point of view of someone who was there a few days ago and um, offered to pay in rubles and was told, um, well, maybe in a couple of days. <laughs> uh, the point being, I mean, if, if any of us, uh, you're there, Francois, but for the rest of us, I mean, uh, Emil's in France and I am and, and Jim's in the United States. I mean, if somebody told me tomorrow, 
oh, the euros are not going to be any good anymore. Uh, now you're going to be paying in, uh, you know, yen or something. It would, it would be more than weird. I mean, people had enough trouble moving to the euro from the franc here. So it, it, it's got to be a shock. And I know that's symbolically it's minor in a way. But in another way, it's like a real cold shower, you know? Yes, yes. That's going to be uh, very difficult to deal with because the Ukrainian currency is already being replaced with the ruble. Uh, how do you price things now? Right. In any case, everything they import, they pay in dollars or euros. Those two currencies are not traded. They're not hard currencies. It's... Uh, to change a currency, you know, invariably when you change a currency, consumer prices go up. Always lose. Never seen, always, always. Yeah. We always lose. Well, here's yeah. a word, one word, read my lips, Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> now, not, none of this happened overnight. The planning of the passports for Crimea citizens by the Russians, this whole plan, and it's interesting that it happened immediately after the Olympics. I mean, within days after the end of the yes. Olympics, yeah. using the pre using the pretext of the Jan uh, the protests starting in November. But this all didn't happen overnight. And my wondering, and this is, how far back did the planning for this really go? Uh, to me, it had to have started well before November. And you know, looking at you, whether they created that pretext, did they create this whole pretext? In Ukraine to begin with, that's you know, was it an underlying attempt by the Russians to stir up issues in Ukraine so that they could do this, or is that just becoming too conspiracy theorist? No, I think there's a uh, it, it, it's linked with what's his name. I would have to look it up. The um, the thing that happened in Georgia and South Ossetia and uh, in Transnistria in uh, in Moldova as well. This is planned well in advance in the Kremlin. And there's a guy, I don't remember his name, who's associated with this planning. You know, first you put some of your citizens there, then you create some pain for them, then you come in to defend them, and you annex. Uh, it's, it's a repeat of the reason. I think at the beginning of the, the protests here in Kiev in November, I told everybody I knew, and say Russia and Putin specifically must be given assurances about the naval base at Sevastopol or he will never ever let go. That is of strategic importance to Russia and you cannot ignore it. You cannot pretend that this will go away. Uh, right. So they, when, they, well they have a they have a lease for like another twenty or thirty years on that, don't they? Yes, but some misguided people in the Ukrainian government uh, and with the protesters, I mean the new Ukrainian government, and the protesters started questioning the validity of that lease in public. And I think that may have been the triggering event because there is no way Russia will let go their only naval base that can enter the Mediterranean ever. Right. Um there's um there's a French uh, sociologist Emmanuel Todd who um, I, I read once he said um, playing chess with the Russians uh, and, and, and in politics is isn't really a good idea because chess is a national sport there um, so but that said about planning it uh, months in advance I think it's not really that much of a conspiracy theory it was pretty clear the status quo was allowing Russia uh, uh, control of Crimea basically and and uh, they 
they they were close to Ukraine, and then uh, all this European thing was pretty obvious. Basically, they got a good deal uh, from the Russians about immediate immediate loan, but basically preventing them from bankrupting. Um, so um, when when that failed, um, because of the people, and I think that's uh, that's quite obvious. It was the people, and I mean, as as even even people like like Putin, who who have such control over uh, over entire countries, empires. Um, they, they're still facing a lot of randomness in the population. You cannot control an entire population. So occasionally, things like in Ukraine happen. And when that happens, well, I think Russia was very consistent. In, in our case, if you want to go, go. But we're taking the stuff that we need. And uh, the, the, most of it was pretty... It's not, it's not a conspiracy theory. It was, it was kind of obvious, right? It, it, it's, a, it's a mechanism. Yeah. It's not even... A, they have this mechanism to keep their strategic asset when something goes wrong with economic and political influence. I think it's that simple. Right. As, the, as the U.S. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, Jim. I, don't know. I, uh, I wanted to ask you something else uh, that I've been wondering. Uh, every time um, the news go about Ukraine and they talk about these volunteers maintaining peace, that sounds quite quite weird and almost like vigilantes of some sort how what, what exactly is the story there i mean how how much can you rely on volunteers maintaining peace um what are Actually, they the, oh, yeah they're there uh and it is uh, not vigilantes in the sense that you have those uh, sombrero wearing uh, shotgun carrying people roaming the streets and uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's more like uh, let's see these are most of the ones I know are veterans uh, from the Ukrainian armed forces, maybe going as far back as the Afghanistan war. And they've been, uh, they're highly organized and it's clearly under the control of uh, the Ministry of Justice, let's call it that, okay. of the interim government, because the, the previous police force simply cannot be trusted. Uh, so they, they've taken over, but then slowly and surely they're being absorbed into police corps. I expect a few months from now they won't exist anymore. Okay. So there aren't any particular incidents with them or something like that? No, no, no. I haven't seen anything like that. These are really well-organized people. And just from that, you know that there is, you know, there's, uh, they get paid. So it has to come from the budget. Right, uh, and they're not just you know people who feel like going out with uh, their pistols and maintaining law and order. Okay, and they're how about full? They have cars. Well, how about how about all those na- yeah all those nationalists that Russia is uh, constantly complaining about? Uh, yeah, we have to protect the I people can't. because of the nationalists. What is how true how how much true is there to that? Well, firstly, I'd like to say that, in my opinion, nationalist is not a dirty word, uh, when correctly understood. Uh, these, if you love your country, you have a right to say, hey, we have a good thing, come and see it. Uh, to, to me, that's my interpretation of nationalism. It's not about building fences, it's about building unity, uh, a, a nation. Hey, who doesn't want a nation? And now, if it's about excluding others, and I disagree with it, but 
Right, so where, where do they stand? Do they exclude or so they're no, just well, patriots? They're, basically. They're, they're patriots. I think it's a, it's a better way to call them. The other thing about these neo Nazis and fascists is, I keep looking for one, <laughs> so I can thank, talk them out of their stupid ideas. And for some reason, I cannot find a single one of them anywhere. <laughs> I know there's a bozo walking around with a machine gun somewhere wearing Nazi tattoos and but he's nowhere in cave because even the organization that he's supposed to be a member of is looking for him to arrest him. So this isn't a common sight on the streets, obviously. There's nothing like that. I mean, I, I wish I had taken photos today. Mm. It's, you know, it's normal people with their kids and they're buying ice cream and they're talking to the soldiers. You you don't see any kind of uh, rejection. There, there are Russians there. There are people from Moscow and St. Petersburg on Maidan today who are there to support because actually it's their way to oppose Putin without getting shot. And nobody breaks their legs because they're Russian. If we started in this country having a fight of Ukrainian versus Russian, it would be worse than Yugoslavia. So, that's, so a, much. that's a capital, a very, very important point, because uh, the comparison has been made, and uh, it's interesting that you bring that up. Um, the whole tribal thing, which, which much of the world is uh, burdened with, really, a lot of Africa, for example, and also Kosovo and... Uh, and uh, Balkans, Balkanization. I mean, everybody hates the neighbor type thing. And it, what you're saying is that that's really not really not completely true currently where you are. No, no, no. There's Which no, is great. There's no such thing here. It's it's a myth. Uh, it's a myth, and it's been propagated because it's easier for the media mm. than explaining the full story, which is a little bit more complex. You know, a nation. Uh, most definitions of nations will say. Common history, common land, common language. Very often you can add common religion. Okay, let's start from that. 75% of Ukrainians practice. They don't just say that they are religious. They actually practice every Sunday. That Most of them are Christians. Uh, languages. Although people may have Russian or Ukrainian as a maternal language, I have yet to meet a Ukrainian who doesn't speak the two plus one or two foreign languages. Well, everybody speaks Russian here, and everybody speaks Ukrainian. Then, what language do they think in? Well, that's different. Uh, in the East, it's more likely to be Russian. In the West, it's more likely to be Ukrainian. In the capital, it's a coin toss. Uh, history. They, they, yes, they, they feel, even the very uh, nowadays Russian-speaking heartland of the Cossacks, the Ukrainian Cossacks, uh, it, it, uh, this Zaporizhia, uh, central South Ukraine, Zaporizhia, um, home of the last Cossacks before Catherine the Great got rid of them all, is it, it, this is the one of the national emblems of Ukraine. Uh, never mind whether you're East, North, West, or speak rather Ukrainian or rather Russian. Uh, Ukrainians strongly identify with that. Yeah. And Ukrainians are not anti-Russia. It's, it's another myth that has been propagated is that this is about being anti-Russia. No way, it's not. 
So, so what was the uh, the protests were about getting part of Europe, right? And I mean, that wasn't make, that wasn't anti-Russia. No, I'm going to make it very very simple. Okay, Ukraine is a poor country. Okay, yeah. for several years now we've been talking about eventually joining the European Union. Nine Ukrainians out of ten will tell you that this is the El Dorado. This magically will transform Ukraine overnight into a paradise. Then, on November 21, you take that hope away. That, yeah. That's it. Hope is a very dangerous thing, because if you take it away, you get explosives. And that it's not anti-Russia. It was a reaction to having a hope taken away. I wanted to read, um, sorry, I wanted to read you uh, all uh, a couple of quotes I just found uh, from today from the president of Belarus, uh, Alexander Lukashenko. And he acknowledges Belarus's position that Crimea is now part of the Russian Federation. And I wanted to read a couple of quotes on it because he says we agree with the Russian Federation on it. Crimea isn't an independent state. It's part of the Russian territory. One can recognize or not recognize that. <clears throat> Excuse me. It changes nothing. When he was asked about uh, Belarus and NATO, he said, if the question arises, we'll be with Russia forever. Then when they asked them about Ukraine possibly being a member of NATO at some point, his comment was, Belarusian re uh, reaction to that will be harsh. Will be harsh. Uh, inter some interesting quotes there, uh, even though he does try to say later on that because Ukraine is a neighbor, they want to work with the new government, wh whoever. But the, the president of Belarus is making it very, very clear on which side of the fence he's on within all of this. And to me, it's going to be interesting how many of the other former Republicans, republics, Republicans, uh, how many of the former republics um, fall into lockstep with that same, either because of financial reasons, ethnic reasons, or you know, whatever. Interesting comments, though, I think. Uh, Lukashenko and Belarus, I think there's something very different here. The um, Belarus means white Russia in Russian. The national language of, okay, there is a Belarusian, Belarus language, but the official language of the country is Russian. Uh, they share the same currency, they, they use the ruble, and it's no secret that uh, Lukashenko is the last dictator in Europe. Uh, so, is, it could be taken with caution. Is that what the people in Belarus think? I mean, those who are left, because this is a country that has seen very significant exile of uh, anybody capable of leaving. Uh, it, it's also a very poor country. It's a country that took the blunt, the, 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 the most of the hit from Chernobyl hit Gomel and Minsk in Belarus. It's a very difficult place. And it has a military dictator. We're talking North Korea here. Okay, Lukashenko is a bit smarter, but so I am not shocked at all that governments who are totally dependent on Russia, like Belarus, Kazakhstan, Armenia, have recognized uh, the Kremlin's official position. I find it more interesting. Uh, to count those who have not, and normally you would have expected to go. Like, China is still out on this, has not recognized 
what happened in Crimea and has not unrecognized it. Now it's much more important to ally to Russia than Belarus could hope to become in 300 years. Uh, the silence of China says something to me louder than the uh, what Lukashenko, which is entirely predictable. The uh, also, okay, there was not a little amount of pressure on Japan to express the outrage of this, and this pressure came from the U.S., but Japan did it. Uh, if you look at where Japan is on the map, what does it have to do with Crimea? It's, yeah, there's a double-edged there's a double-edged sword to diplomacy because diplomacy is often um, re, you know reduced to uh, I for one support our puppet masters. I mean, it's it's often uh, posturing. I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah. Uh, Francois, what what is the next? Is there the is there a schedule for something interesting that's going to happen? That's going to make a change. There was the president left and so on. Where are we now? And and where are we going to be next week? Or is it next month? Or is there some? Well, the next uh, the next very important date is the upcoming presidential election on uh, what is it May twenty fifth. You know, it's uh, for a presidential election that's not a lot of time, which we need to prepare for, we need to pay. Uh, that's going to be very important because then we will have a democratically elected president, which currently we don't have. We have a nominated president mm. who was put in place by the legislative assembly. That president uh, will then be able to sign uh the deep free trade agreement with the European Union, which is what mm -hmm. we really need here. Um, How many candidates are there? Two or more? Well, there will be. By the time we, we're at the polls, there will be 25. Wow. It's, uh, it's one of the, the problems with what has traditionally been called the opposition in Ukraine is that they have trouble uniting and... Now, you, you have uh, Prime Minister Yatsenyuk currently was in Washington, has uh, signed the um, political association with Europe. He is not president material. He's a damn good administrator. I hope we get to keep him. Um, some superstars, uh, Yulia Tymoshenko, for example, just came out of a long stay in jail courtesy of previous government will certainly be a candidate. However, she does not enjoy a tremendous level of popular support currently. She's pro-Russian, right? No, no, she's uh, actually pro-Europe, but I would say she's more like... Uh, she, she closely resembles Hillary Clinton in terms of uh, attitude to politics and uh, kind of aura of wanting to be everyone's mother. <laughs> uh, Is that good or bad? No, she's pro. Because <laughs> well, I know I don't. Want, I wouldn't want my mother in charge of. I, I don't armies. want to be mother, but <laughs> she was hugely popular when she was uh, the first time she was prime minister of Ukraine after the Orange Revolution. But mm -hmm. then there were that revolution did not keep its promises and everybody associated with the orange revolution is now a known player in my opinion we need a new leadership to appear here and it might be that the chocolate magnet mr proroshenko 
who currently enjoys the most popular support. Uh, and who doesn't like chocolate? Who doesn't like <laughs> chocolate? And it's a cheaper way to buy an election, <laughs> you know, buy a candy. <laughs> no, but he's uh, come here, course, little citizen. <laughs> he's a businessman. He's very rich. I mean, he has hundreds of millions of dollars, but it's not like he has tens of billions. So he's not seen as an oligarch. Uh, he was on the street with protesters. I mean, that's literally he risked his life at some point, and he's a he's a new face. Uh, so he could be uh, the winner. I don't care too much because now we have reverted to a constitution where the president is essentially decorative, and the legislative assembly and the cabinet of the of ministers with the prime minister are the real government. So what I want. I don't care if they're blue or orange, if they speak and think in Russian or Ukrainian. I want them to be competent first. Second, I want them to be honest. Yeah? Stop stealing from the people. Oh, that's and a dream. You know what? You know what, Francois? That's <laughs> no, a good... Yeah, but at least if we could re reduce the level of corruption Craft, yeah. to European yes, average, yes, absolutely. that would be a tremendous improvement. Can I, I would suggest that we terminate with that wish from the three countries mm -hmm. present here, uh, France, the United States, and Ukraine, that, and, and I'll even speak for the rest of the world, could you just stop stealing our money and being corrupt? And find a or, way or, to make things least, better. Or at least just, you know, be a little bit less blatant yeah. and obscene about it. Like steal a reasonable amount. Just take a little off, just take a little off the top, but That's leave us with something. Nobody's better at that than the American politician, though. I tell you what, you know, they'll come out with their blow-dried hair and, you know, hold your baby, kiss your baby while they're stealing your wallet from behind you. Um, I don't know, you know, I would love to think that there's a time and place in the world when we can alleviate some of that. Uh, I don't know. We'll all be know. gone. But my, my wife, the historian, says that it's the same in, in the entire first world. All it these, it's, it's only a difference of degree. Um, should it we is. go around the table one more time? Or, I mean, we've, we've covered, and this is fantastic, Francois. I really appreciate uh, you spending the time on this. And we have, we, I don't like to talk politics unless... Someone is locally available who can say, "Here's what we're feeling here." So appreciate yeah, your participation. I, I disagree with him. I like just shooting the fat, no matter what. But that's okay. <laughs> well, you, you're welcome to do that, but I find it worthless. Whereas yeah, Francois was there, he has some actual things to say. Absolutely. That are this has actually been. Fantastic. I'm going to say that so far, this is the favorite show that uh, since we started, Randy. Uh, and it's kind of one of the neat things is because like yesterday we talked about food and vegan and vegetarian and why and why people hate me because I'm a vegetarian. Um, and today we can talk about, you know, why people hate each other because I, I love vegetarians. <laughs> good. I know we taste uh, good. So I know. Taste good. <laughs> yeah, I eat, I eat one or two every week. <laughs> uh, Excellent. Pretty soon you're going to be reduced to that. No, I'm <laughs> Might be. I'm so I'm so uh, so uh, happy that we had this today. This is really yep. good. And I think that for anybody out there, because you have like you, you have the U.S. media on one side, you, know, you have the BBC and you have other news organizations. And then you have that joke that's called RT uh, as the, you know, Putin's mouthpiece. But it's really hard to get a local feel of what's really going on 
that doesn't where ratings don't matter or where you know readership doesn't matter. I'm Randy and I, it's like I'm not concerned with how many people are listening to this today. I hope a lot of people do, but we're not predicating it on it. So it's nice to just be able to have an honest conversation that doesn't have a slanted point of view. And I'm really appreciating that you guys came on today. Yep. And it was great to have you, Emil. Emil um, is powering our uh, our show today, too, with uh, Jitsi, jitsi.org. If you need a video conferencing system, you should go check that out. Thanks, Emil. My pleasure, guys. Nice.